1: This episode is in partnership with British luxury yacht manufacturer, Princess Yachts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new Motorsport podcast series. I'm Ed Foster, and this time we're turning our attention to Porsche. The series is called Porsche's Winning Formula. Ever since Ferdinand Porsche designed the Volkswagen Beetle in 1939, eight years after launching his eponymous company in 1931, Porsche has been at the forefront of vehicle design. While the pretty 356 was the first car to carry the Porsche name in the late 1950s, many of you will automatically think of the 911 that arrived over 10 years later. Arguably the most successful sports car of all time. The model is still being built nearly 60 years later. In those years, Porsche has won the Le Mans 24 hours more than any other manufacturer. It's been victorious in Formula One, both as a constructor and an engine supplier. And has won countless gt championships with its beloved 911. Porsche's have even done rallycross and rallying. In this special podcast series we are going to speak to the racers that are at the forefront of the german manufacturers racing development and key names from the road car side to get a better idea of how this great company has had so much success for so long. Hello everyone and welcome to another motorsport podcast in the series of Porsche's winning formula I'm joined by Tim Schenken. Thank you so much for joining us, Tim, all the way from Australia. It's 8 p.m. with you, 9 a.m. with us. Um, it's, it's great to see you. I can't believe we haven't done a motorsport podcast with you.
2: Yeah, I think the closest I've done for, well, it wasn't a podcast, but the closest I've uh, got to motorsport, apart from when I was racing, um, or in more recent years, was uh, a lunch with Simon Taylor.
1: Yeah, the, with that, that wonderful series he did. Yes. Um, for years yeah. and years. I think I once worked out how many words he had written because he, I think he had lunch with over 100 people and in the office on a particularly boring day after deadline, um, I think we worked out roughly how many calories he had taken in over his Lunch With series. <laughs> and it's a miracle he's as, as light and slim as he is. Um, but Tim, obviously, this is this podcast is in the series of, of Porsche's winning formula, but you raced for so many people and um and raced in so many cars that you know we, we've got so much to talk about um what i wanted to do was just ask a bit about what you're doing now um because you're still working for the australian motorsport uh, branch um are you still the the director of racing operations
2: yeah that's that, that's my title um i'm sort of easing back a little bit uh uh now um so my main role is um uh, with the Australian Grand Prix, I'm the clerk of the course at the Australian Grand Prix. In fact, I've been a clerk of course at the Australian Grand Prix since 1985. I think was our first race in Adelaide, our first Formula One race. Um, and I'm chairman of the organising committee, and I'm also race director for the Supercar Series. Um, and uh, in addition to that, I do a fair bit of work with the FIA. I've been on. I'm on. Been on the FIA Circuit Commission. For some years, I do a lot of track inspections for
1: for it. And I mean, this is a position you've held now for, it's over three decades, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I came back to Australia. I left Australia when I was 22. Um, I came back when I was 42, so I came back in 1984. And I've been been with uh, Motorsport Australia since then. Originally, it was the Confederation of Australian Motorsport recently changed its name.
1: So we're the uh, FIA affiliate in Australia, right? And how? Do, what are you very positive about? Sort of future of of Australian motorsport, especially on the driver side, because you know we've obviously most famously there's Daniel Ricciardo in Formula One at the moment. Um, but I I think I might get this stat wrong, but I think you're one of only five Australian drivers to finish on a Formula One podium. Is that right? Oh, yeah, I I, guess I yeah. think that's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, what what does the future look like for Australian motorsport?
2: Well, a few, well first of all, I mean our, our main uh, national series is the uh, Supercar Championship, um, and like England, it's the British Touring Car Championship, and Germany, it's the DTM. So that's uh, that's by far the most popular and uh, most well supported uh, championship we have here. Uh, and of course, we've got youngsters coming uh, coming in, uh, coming up through open wheelers, but. They really need, I mean, I would. if anyone was to ask me today, uh, the path to uh, Formula One, it's to go to Europe and go karting. And you need to go there when you're young, and obviously follow then that FIA uh, ladder, which is Formula Three, Formula Two, Formula One, which strangely, strangely enough, in my day, that was the way you got into Formula One, much the same. It lost its way for a while, but uh, Jean Todd brought that, uh, that uh, step back in that uh, that ladder back in and uh, that seems to work very well
1: Uh, there's actually there's a question here that I was going to come to a bit later but it's from um someone called Michael Dover um he wants to get into motor racing as a driver and he's saying this is very very difficult do you think it was easier you know back back in the 60s and the 70s to to get to the pinnacle of sport
2: no I don't think it's any different I mean in the 60s and 70s there was nowhere near the media coverage that you've got today. So any opportunity to find any money was almost zero. If you're, if you're looking for any sort of sponsorship, some drivers had some private money, but, um, uh, it's, it, I don't think it's any different. I don't think it's any different. And, um, and now of course, uh, um, motor or motor racing is such a, a uh, such so well covered by the media, um, that, uh, uh that you've uh, got a much better chance of finding the support
1: to to move up through the ranks. Now, I mentioned before that the podcast is part of this series of Porsche's winning formula. Your kind of Porsche career, I suppose, really was was compressed into a sort of a three-year period between 74 and 77. Is that, a, that about right? And then one race in 78, I think.
2: I stopped in 77.
1: Yeah, okay. So it's it was a quite it's quite a compressed sort of Porsche career, as it were. But the um how did you first get involved in the? because you you did the german drm in 74 and that was in the the rsr that's right yes
2: that's i was doing formula one with trojan the car wasn't uh wasn't right um and that was my last shot at uh really at formula one um I, i could see i wasn't going to get back in there. Um, so uh, I th- it was actually John Fitzpatrick introduced me to a very wealthy German uh, fella. Uh, his name was Georg uh, Luce, G-E-O-R-G, Luss, Luss L-O-O-S, um, who'd made an f- absolute fortune in property development. And um, he, he had his cars prepared by racing service Porsche. So he, he only employed a truck driver and everything else was done at the factory, um, so, which, uh, which was interesting. Um, the development was, there wasn't a lot of development at the factory, so it was uh, people like Kramer and the likes, of course, they were private teams and they could do as much development as they liked. But was uh, no, it was it was, it was quite a good time, quite a successful time.
1: And how, what was your relationship with, with Le Mans like? Because you, you did race at Le Mans you know, a, a number of times, most notably in, in Porsches. Um, some people love it. Some people don't really like it. Um, what did you think of the race? Well, I
2: raced there, I think I first raced there in 1970 with Matra. Yeah, in, the, in the Matra, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. Um, You're going to have to keep me honest here with the years and the
1: cars. (laughs) You're asking the wrong guy, but that's right. You can get away with murder on this.
2: Um, So I'm not sure how many, uh, how many Le Mans I did, maybe six, maybe seven. But I did, I did a, um, so it was Matra and the car was out in the first uh, hour. And then uh, in 73, I was there with Ferrari, with uh, Carlos Reutemann and the 312 PB and we got through i think we were leading around 2 two thirty 30 in the morning and the engine broke and then i was back again there with uh uh Luce, the career the 934 i think of a 935 but i never managed to finish never managed to finish
1: did i do, i think was it um in 76 you finished second in class with a 934
2: i don't i don't recall are you sure
1: i think so well, I, this is this is off this is this is off my sort of research over the last few days. I might well have got it wrong. <laughs> so, well, anyway, let's. Um, the but it was it was quite a sort of it's a, it's a strange race, isn't it? Because it's not so much you having to win it; it's it's you having to survive it, as your results show. It must be quite a frustrating race to to take well, part well, in. Well, that. It,
2: well, it was it was interesting because in my time you couldn't drive the cars flat out for twenty four hours. I think it's different today. You can drive. Uh, on the limit for pretty much the whole race. Um, certainly the first, uh, the first part of the race. Um, so driving, I think in 73, when I was with Reutemann, we were driving something like five seconds or six seconds off the ultimate speed of the car. And that actually is quite hard to drive at that speed. When you're used to, when you're racing open wheelers and you're used to driving you know, right on the edge, to driving um, five or six uh, seconds a lap slow, uh, or off the pace, uh, it was quite hard, but you sort of get into the into the swing of it. And of course, in those days we had, uh, Mulsanne Strait was uh, was straight, there were no chicanes. Um, and that little uh, Ferrari was probably 320, 200, 200 miles an hour car. And it was quite funny because in the signalling pits was not where the regular pits were, it was at the end of Mulsanne Strait, just around the corner uh, 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 around Mulzahn Corner, so uh, I could swear to you, every lap, as I went around Mulzahn Corner, and I looked across to the right to see what the pit board was. The mechanic was just coming out with the board, and I missed it every lap. The only only way I knew how I was how I was uh, progressing, how we are progressing, uh, was um, Goodyear had a blimp, they had an airship. And they had a big screen on the big panel on the side and it shows the positions of the cars. So as you were going down Morseon straight, you could look up and see where you were running. Um, and for fuel stops, it had a reserve tank. So when the engine coughed, you went past the pits once and then you came in on the next lap.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's so different nowadays, isn't it? When, you know, you hear in all forms of motorsport, especially top level motorsport the engineers on the pit wall are feeding every single bit of information to the drivers and, and and vice versa with all the sensors um and i know obviously you were driving five six seconds off the pace i suppose they do in formula one races now you know with the, with the fuel and the tires sometimes at the start um but was it do you think it was a purer form of motorsport as a driver because you didn't have all this information it was down to you
2: Oh, it was a different form. I wouldn't say it was a purer form. I mean, the information you had in the car was the rev counter, the oil pressure, the oil temperature, and the water temperature. Um, you know, it was just a different way of, of 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 racing. And you can never go back. You're always going forward. And what we say today, people say today to me, oh, it's it's you know, look at motor racing today. It's it's um, you know, how can it be like this? It's uninteresting. And I said, well, just wait 25 years time, you'll be looking back to the day and it's the heyday.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's very true. Yeah. yeah.
2: So um, the, George, really the purest, the, the purest form of racing is Formula One. There's no doubt about
1: that. Yeah. D- during this period in the seventies, when you're doing German DRM, the European GT championship, you know, Le Mans in, in the 911s, um, you also race Jaguars, you race Fords, BMWs, how, how do they all compare? And you know, where was kind of Porsche in that pecking order?
2: Well, first of all, you're going to have to remind me here, I was driving the Porsche, that's right, three the, the uh, Carrera, then the three nine three four nine three five. 9.35. Also had a run for a while in that uh, European equivalent of the Can-Am series, was called the Inter-Series. So I was driving a 9.17, yeah. 10, which uh, George Luce owned.
1: Um, but I wasn't. I, I wasn't racing uh, BMW, nor. I right, so did you not? Did you not do a one-off race in a two in a two thousand and two BMW no, no, no. or a, a, a Jaguar XJ twelve? I'm going no, to think... uh, find no. the person who gave me this information and give him a clip round the air. <laughs> <laughs>
2: no, the Jaguar. No, the Jaguar I drove in nineteen seventy seven. I did the European uh, Touring Car Championship. Uh, Leyland owned Jaguar, the the brand at the time, and we had that uh, XJ12 5.3 C. So this was a very powerful car, and it was a strange time for touring car regulations because the FIA regulations allowed you to make quite major modifications to the engine, but very restricted with the transmission and the brakes. So our cars were very fast much and the, the competition was the uh, 635 BMW was uh, we were much quicker much more powerful car but the brakes we had no brakes at all it was like a train just slowing for a, a train into a station that just sort of slowed up so having uh, overtaken on the faster circuits the BMWs and they were just a little spot in the rear view mirror as you arrived at the corner, having to brake so early, of course they were alongside you and overtook you. Next week you were past them. But yeah. we, 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 I don't think I drove with John Fitzpatrick, and we never, uh, we never really finished, um, finished a race. Or well, we might have finished one or two, but uh, the cars are unreliable. It needed really a big injection of uh, a, a funding for the following year, and it would have been, uh, it would have been a, a, a championship winner.
1: Yeah. And, the, you know, but by, by this time, you know, Porsche was really at the forefront of sports car racing. We've been speaking to Brian Redmond for the same series and his Porsche career obviously started kind of five, 10 years before when actually Porsche, yes, it was, it was successful in sports cars, but the 917 hadn't arrived. Um, and really Porsche's success, especially at Le Mans, was, was yet to come and by this stage. I guess you could tell that, that Porsche was one of the manufacturers to drive for, and it was, it was one of the cars to have. I and mean, you mentioned the XJ12 with a complete lack of brakes, but uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think the Porsches were obviously pretty sorted.
2: Yes, yeah, very much so. Um, and I mean, Porsches always were. Fr- from the, from the, virtually from the time they started racing, uh, they got involved in motor racing, Porsches were, were always a class winner. And remember the cars I were driving were not necessarily outright cars, they were class cars.
1: Yeah. And uh, tell me about the nine one seven ten, because it's sort of one of my all-time favorite cars, because it's a well, thousand brake horsepower or something, and it's just what an absolute monster. But to people I speak to say, well, actually it was really nice to drive, which in, in my amateur head is a very hard thing to compute, something with that much power and sort of, you know, that that little you know, that little grip. Well, it was
2: actually quite easy to drive. I, 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 <laughs> before I before the first race, I was thinking, "Oh my God, in a thousand brake horsepower!" In fact, they they had different uh, tune of engines, and and the way they did that was by the size of the turbocharger. So, if you're on a short, twisty track, you had a small turbocharger on because it'd spin up quicker, so it was more drivable. And if you went to a place like Hockenheim, in my days there were no chicanes at Hockenheim. You just went out of the stadium, down to the East Curve, fast right, and back again to the stadium. Then you had the bigger turbocharger on, put up with the lag, but the power was there, as you say, over a thousand brake horsepower. But I was a bit—I uh, uh, wondered myself, to be honest—that at, um, at first. But when I got in the car and drove it, it was—it was remarkably easy to drive. It had. For those days, tremendous download, so it had huge grip, had huge tires, um, excellent brakes. You just didn't want to hit anything in it because of course it just had a tube frame.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's astonishing, isn't it? But I think, I suppose that was kind of Porsche's calling card, wasn't it, especially going on into the later 70s and into the 80s was, you know, these cars, the 956, the 962, they were actually very drivable cars because, you know, they were run by customer teams. and they were not, they weren't easy to win in, but they were easy to go quickly in and finish a 24 hour race.
2: And you know, Porsche used that um, um, development center in Vysak, and uh, even their their, um, race cars, they would give them a hell of a hammering at Vysak on roads, virtually like normal roads, which were much more severe conditions than, the racetrack, so uh, you, you never had to worry about them breaking.
1: Yeah. Now, going from <clears throat> the nine one seven ten, I wanted to rewind all the way back to to when you were still in Australia, and having made a go kart out of, I think, a bed frame, you yes. then made your um, your motorsport start, or certainly your first race start, um, in of all things, a Simca.
2: That's right. My mother had a Simca Aronde, um which I think had a. Uh, 1.2 litre engine, I can't remember. But, uh, and I was all very, all, already very much into motor racing. And uh, I was a member of the local car club, the Mini 850 car club. And um, I said to my mother that I was going to a barbecue somewhere. And instead of that, I went off out to Calder because uh, they, the car club had a club meeting there. And in the morning, there were quarter mile drags, quarter mile sprints, just on the straight, of course. And in the afternoon, um, they had circuit racing. Well, uh, I didn't have a competition license then, uh, but in the drag, uh, in, in, the, in the sprints, you didn't have to have a, you just had to have a road license. So I, I competed in that in the morning, and then I stayed around at lunchtime just to watch some friends racing. And I noticed when the cars were lining to go up to go out of practice, practice no, one, no one was really checking the, the cars. And I still had the number on the rear window, you, know, you put it on with a with some white uh, uh, boot polish. Um, so I thought I'll just go and line up with these cars and see what happens. And I lined up and they waved me out onto the track. So I thrashed around there and I thought, well, that's all pretty good. And um, then uh, afterwards, I'd, I was looking at the grid sheets and lo and behold, my name was on there. So when my race came up, I lined up there in the race, and I, I, uh, I did a couple of races. So, in fact, in the background there somewhere there's a cup. I found it uh, not so long ago, uh, which I won in, in, in that race. So don't go telling um, John Todd that I did my first race without a competition license, <laughs> otherwise
1: I <laughs> I was going to say it must must sit particularly well with your current sort of official hat on, um, <laughs> but the, you then you started work for a BMC dealership in Melbourne, I think, and yes. as a, on the sort of clerical side, and that was when you started consuming the British motorsport publications, whether that was motorsport or auto sport. Um, was that purely out of a love for motor racing and an interest, or even at that time did you think, oh, I, I want a career in this. this? This is what I want to do. Well,
2: I was introduced um, to motor racing through a school friend of mine. Uh, I was I went to a, a grammar school here in Melbourne and uh, one of the boys in the class, uh, his father had a little hill climb car. And I went around to have a look at that uh, one afternoon. And when I saw it, a light bulb went on. And from that point onwards, all I wanted to do was to, um, was to go motor racing. So I left school early. I was a, a hopeless student. Um, all I could dream about was motor racing. I was working in the city of Melbourne and uh, there was um, only a block or so away was a, a, a big news, uh, news agent called the Technical Book Company. And they had auto sport, motoring news, Motorsport, of course, motor racing. And uh, I would go there virtually every lunchtime to see if there was a new uh, new magazine. in. so, and I would read them cover to cover um, and I had realised very quickly that if I wanted to be a professional driver, I had to go to Europe. So uh, I was quite clued up by the time I in, went to Europe in 1966. I sort of knew all about uh, motor racing in England
1: and in Europe. Was that, I mean, <clears throat> I know obviously you you realised you needed to do that, but that must be it. Must have been an enormous decision to make, because um, you know you you had a. I think you also raced a Lotus 18 in Australia and. Um, You know, you were doing it, you won the Australian Hill Climb Championship in that jack-powered machine. Um, To move over the other side of the world at that age, um, were your parents telling you not to or anyone else? Or was it just a single-minded, this is what I need to do? I was very single-minded about it. Um,
2: My parents couldn't understand. Uh, There was no uh, motorsport background at all or driving background at all. On my parents, with my parents, Um, and I guess it was just I was just naive, and and you know that's what I was going to do, Um, and I just set about and just set about it, Um, and I got on a boat here um, in uh, in Melbourne, in Port Melbourne, and uh, five weeks later I turned up in Southampton, the middle of winter. But you know when you're when you're really dedicated or Absolutely focused on doing something. All the stuff around you doesn't matter. And uh, when, when I, I went to when I arrived in London, I went to uh, we called a Kangaroo Valley. It was called it's Earl's Court, uh, where all Australians went. And I had a bed sitter there, and it wasn't long. I was moved out. I got a job with the Chequered Flag in Chiswick, and I moved out uh, maybe to Brentford somewhere somewhere like that. And uh, I I was sharing a Uh, one-bedroom flat with four other guys. Uh, We just had four mattresses on the floor, but all of us were involved in motor racing and uh, the um, flat was only there as a means of sleeping and having breakfast. The rest of the time we're out working or working on race cars. Um, And when I look back now, I think, oh, my God. You know, when you live for something, you, 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 you don't notice all of that.
1: Yeah, did did you not go and see the editor at Autosport to uh, to get him to to mention that the Australian Hill Climb Championship winner was there in the UK?
2: I I did. I went to Prade Street in Paddington. Does that sound right?
1: And um, yeah, that's yeah, that sounds right. I,
2: I arrived uh, arrived there at their offices. I think Simon Taylor. Um, I spoke to Simon Taylor. Um, Paddy McNally was there because at the time Paddy McNally was the I think he was called the European correspondent. He'd covered the Grand Prix, so I, uh, I arrived there and I spoke about while I was there and what I while I was while I was in England and what I had done. And Paddy McNally turned around and said, "He said, you know, we we, we put a thing in the, the magazine only a couple of weeks ago for a young Austrian driver, and uh, uh, through that he's been able to secure uh, a, a Formula Two drive. Well, that was Jochen Rent. So the following week, there was my photo in auto sport and a short story. Um, but I've, I've been waiting for that phone call. No one ever rang to offer me a drive.
1: <laughs> now, before you before you came over to the UK, though, you had a very you had a very torrid time in Australia on the kind of on the motorsport side with the death of two kind of racing friends. Um, at that age, that must have been a very just. To tell me a bit about that, because it was—it must have been a very difficult thing to to go through. Um, and then there was all the press coverage of you know having these two friends having died. You were then in the car, and is it going to be three fatal crashes and three weekends? Um, that's a lot for a for, for lads your age.
2: Yes, I guess looking back now is a bit of a nightmare, to be honest. But in some ways, such a terrible thing turned out. Positive, because that without that happening, and it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's not a nice thing to say. I would never have gone to Europe. I'm sure I would have been racing. Uh, I probably would have been racing in Australia. Uh, yeah, that was that was uh, that that was a pretty tragic time. But you know that that was part of the sport. And my first Grand Prix was at Monza in 1970, and one of my heroes, Jochen Rint, was uh, was killed there. But you know, you, you have just a naive belief that it's not going to happen to you. If you thought you were going to get hurt, especially me, if I thought I was going to get hurt or killed, I wouldn't be doing it. So yeah. all the stuff goes on around you, um, but you just, uh, you, you just continue.
1: Interestingly, when we were chatting to Brian Redmond, he said um, that before he raced at Spa, he'd be up all night worrying. And he mentioned that to, I can't remember who it was he mentioned it to, and they said you're a complete idiot. God, if I if I was up all night worrying whether I was going to survive, I wouldn't have done it. I just didn't think about it. <laughs> so they thought Brian was particularly particularly bad on that. Um, but it once you, you... Uh,
2: just let me tell you, my introduction to Spa was 1968 on the old circuit in
1: a Formula Ford car. So that everywhere you had, you, had, you had to break three times right. or something.
2: I think you only you only uh, you only break, um I think uh, three times a lap, three times a lap. So that was my introduction to Spa. But when I went back later that year to drive a GT40, I was terrified and the car wasn't particularly well set up. The front right height was too high. So as you went down the straight, it was sort of floating all over the road. Um, and I was driving with a fellow Australian, the chap called John Rayburn. The race started. We were a very poor team. It was pouring with rain. We didn't, have, we didn't have wets. We only we couldn't afford wets, so we had slick tyres. So the cars came around on the first lap, Jackie X leading, of course. He went down past the pits, up the up through uh, Eau Rouge and disappeared before the next car arrived. In fact, I stood there thinking there must have been a huge accident because what's happened to the rest of the field? Anyhow, the rest of the field came past and then eventually John, John came past and as he passed the pits, he put his hand up to wave it aquaplaned and ended up in a ditch. So I was uh, I was quite quite happy about that. you we driving around in the wet on on slicks. wasn't uh, wasn't a good idea.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?
1: Because Sterling Moss famously always said, you know, I think motor racing should have that element of danger or at least an element of it. You know, if you get it wrong, you get some. He he didn't want people to die, but he wanted some form of penalty. Um, And the analogy he always used was everyone, anyone can walk across a tightrope a a foot off the ground, but very few people can walk across a tightrope a hundred foot off the ground um what are your thoughts on sort of modern motor racing and the the runoffs and you know what what you guys had you know ending up in a ditch or a tree
2: well do you know in in the 70s when i was doing formula one we used to think we were quite well off because we had monocoque chassis we had bag tanks we had seat belts we had bell crash helmets we had a an excuse for a roll cage um and when we look back at what it was like racing in the 50s and 60s of course they had nothing like that so we were in some ways much better off
1: yeah it's i wanted to talk a bit about your 68 season where you started formula fours and then by april you had a formula three contract because you were winning everything and then you won not only the british formula four championship but also the british formula three championship which i think to this day is the only time that's that's ever been done um i know you learned the british circuits uh in obviously in an Anglia and then Lotus 22, I think. But yes, what was it that made everything click in that 68 season? Because you were you were nigh on unbeatable.
2: Well I had the right car and I had the right engine. Uh and it's it's like motorsport is today. It has to if it's all going for you, uh it's all going for you. Um and as you say I've learned the circuits with that uh for the well only a couple of races in the in that uh, Ford Anglia, but in, with the Lotus 22, and also I had all the gear ratios for the uh, for the f- uh, Formula Three gear ratios for the British circuits, and I was able to calculate uh, the difference and convert it to for- to f- Formula Ford, because obviously a much lower revving engine, but same gear and gearbox. Um, so I just started on the, uh, off on the right foot, and it just it just happened. Uh, and um, I mean, the amount of motor racing you could do was incredible. In 68, 1968, I did 68 races in the year, and I think I won 48 of them. 32 uh, were in, form, in, in were Formula uh, Formula Ford wins. But you could the race meetings then were on the one day, so you could race at Silverstone on Saturday and go to Slenderton and race. Uh, snetterton on uh, on the sunday and you often had heats and finals so the amount of mileage uh, one could do was, was incredible
1: yeah and the, you mentioned the gear ratios there there was wasn't there a particular trick you had for Brands hatch for qualifying and then the race
2: yeah that was in that was in formula three um uh, i think a few of the the top drivers would do this so in for practice you'd put your first gear um was you used at uh, Druid's hairpin. Um, so you effectively then once you got out of the pitch you got running, you really had a five a five speed gearbox because the first first gear you, <coughs> the first you wouldn't use, but you used all the other four. But when it came to the race, of course you had to you couldn't start with that um, uh, with that very high first gear. You had to go back to a normal uh, uh, to, to the normal gear ratios. And surprisingly, you it just fell into place, you didn't have to think about it. Um, it just worked. So instead of going into Druids in first gear, you went in in second gear.
1: I tell you, was it not? Was that where you were, met Ronnie Peterson?
2: I met Ronnie, yeah, and I met Ronnie, I think it was 68. And I have to say, gear ratios then that was a big deal the gear ratios, especially with a Formula 3 car because the thousand cc high revving, no torque. So the gear ratios were quite critical. And normally, if you were, say, at Silverstone and someone asked you for the gear ratios, you'd give them the gear ratios for Monaco. Or if you're in Monaco and they ask you for the gear ratios, you'd give them the gear ratios for Silverstone. But I don't know what it was about, Ronnie. I just, he came and chatted to me and asked, uh, could I help and ask for the gear ratios? And I gave him the gear ratios. And uh, we sort of got on from then where he was, um, A lifelong friend, short life for him, but uh, um, we got on well together. And our wives and, uh, well, they were girlfriends then and got on well. So um, it was unusual for me because really I didn't make any friends in racing. Everyone to me was the enemy. You were trying to beat them. So how could you be friends with them, Um, especially your teammate, because there you had somebody in the same car as you. So... You had to beat him that was your first your first aim was to beat your teammate the second aim was to win the race but with ronnie we just uh we, we just clicked
1: well, what was he like as a driver because you know for, for some of my age the photos you see him as a sort of opposite lock and you hear stories of him complaining about understeer and then a mechanic going down to the corner where he's complaining about understeer and seeing him coming in on oversteering and they had to tell him on oh, no, and no, on, Ronnie. That's overseas, and then I'm making it oversteer to get rid of the understeer. Was he was he as naturally talented as, as everyone says?
2: Yes, he, he was just he was just gifted. Uh, um, he was just gifted, and it was interesting. When I started driving for Ferrari, we drove together for Ferrari in nineteen. Uh, we drove uh, together in 1972, and one of the first, for the early races I did, he would go out and practice and do quite a exceptional time. I'd get in the car, and it was wasn't balanced at all. It was all over the place. So I'd get the car working the way I liked it, and then he would get in, and I'd think, "Oh my God, he's going to go five seconds a lap quicker." Well, he never went any quicker. He'd just drive around the problems, um, and it worked well with us because I would sort the car out. So, he, he, you know, to drive around the problems, you're very hard on the. You'd be very hard on the car, certainly on the tires. So once the car was right, he could uh, lap, still, of course, lap uh, very quickly, but much easier on the car.
1: Where did your sort of engineering side come from? Because, you know, obviously you were very cleared up on the gear ratios on car setup, um, whereas the likes of Ronnie, that was almost alien to them because they just drove around problems. Where did that engineering side come from?
2: Um, well, the importance of setting up the car properly in the workshop before you even leave to go to the circuit I sort of learnt that through Chaz Beatty. Chaz Beatty was um, team manager. Uh, He was a designer who worked for the Checkered Flag, and he had he had said to me that if you get the car properly set up in the workshop, and you get to the circuit, if you've got any problems, you're 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 not chasing uh, a setup issue. So I always made it. um, uh, I always. Prepared my own cars, certainly Formula Ford cars, um, and in those days, for example, with Formula Ford, you had steel wheels, and they were they were never straight. So I made up a set of uh, setup wheels. You know, there's always a slight buckle in them. So when you're trying to do the camber, you've got to be careful where the where the wheel is. So I made a, uh, I made up a set of um, a setup wheels. So the diameter was identical from the four for the four wheels. And they, were, they ran straight. So when I set the car up in the workshop, it was absolutely spot on. But when you got to the racetrack, if you had a bit of a handling issue, it was more about adjusting shock absorbers, perhaps ride height or uh, or, or anti-roll bars.
1: Now, we must just take a moment to thank our podcast partner, Princess Yachts. Princess Yachts has been a longtime supporter of Motorsport Magazine, and we are absolutely delighted that they are partnering this podcast series on Porsche. Much like the one with the green cover, Princess Yachts epitomizes the best of British manufacturing. And this company does amazing things on a daily basis. You must go and have a look at their website, princessyachts.com. Now, something I I, I really want to talk to you about is the 84-hour marathon at the Nürburgring. So you did that in a cologne Capri. And it's just, I know there's obviously the 24-hour race at the Nürburgring, which I've I've been to, actually. And it's one of sort of the maddest, most wonderful races I've ever ever been to. But... 84 hour marathon at the Nürburgring. Ring. Um, tell me about it because there were lots of quite strict rules about how long you'd be in the pits, what you, you could do out in the circuit, how long the lap time could be.
2: Well, first of all, it was, I think there was a rally called Liège Sophia Liège, and there'd been some fatalities. And so they changed the whole concept of the rally. So it actually started in Liège, but you drove the cars, then drove on the road to the Nürburgring. So they were, they were obviously, uh, modified series production cars. Um, and I'd been approached by Jochen Niepash who was then the, um, the, uh, uh, motorsport manager for, for Germany, uh, to, to, uh, to do this race. So, um, and it was on the North and South circuit. So one lap was 29 kilometers, I think on the, on the north circuit, is 22, so it was 29 kilometers. And I was driving with Dieter Glemser and a Frenchman, his name, I can't remember his first uh, name, but it was P-O-P-I-O-T. And uh, it was 84 hours, so uh, long as you say, but it did have some strange rules. And one of them, exactly as, as you pointed out, was, was uh, the pit stop, because for every minute you were stopped in the pits, you were, you were deducted one lap, which was 30 kilometers. And the rules being what they were at the time, um, we didn't—you didn't have air guns and air jacks and all this sort of thing. We had a hydraulic jack, and you had to use the wheel brace that was uh, that was um, on the car. So the race started. In, uh, the race started in uh, in good weather. It wasn't long, and it started to rain. So we'd worked out that you could stop in the pits, the mechanics could change one tire, and you could get out again in less than a minute. So you went out, you stopped. So you had three slicks and a wet on. You did a lap and stopped again. You had three slicks, sorry, two slicks, two wets, stopped again until you were all on wets. And then it would dry out, so you'd have to go through the through the same thing again.
1: Is everyone doing that? <laughs> I can't remember. It,
2: it, it just seemed, seemed silly, but I mean, we were, I think we we got as far as 60 hours and you'd have to look at the records and I think the head gasket went. But we were well and truly in the lead by then because teams had been taking, they'd been losing uh, 30, uh, one lap, 30 kilometres every time they stopped in the pits for over a minute. But it was also also funny the start of the race because unlike a normal race where you pull up on the grid, you get the countdown and the... um, the national flag, and you start. This race started the first time you cross the the line. Uh, I think it probably started at three o'clock in the afternoon. I don't remember. So the first time you used cross the line after three o'clock, that's when your race started. So a lot of people had worked out. Well, I say a lot of people, maybe ten other uh, drivers had worked out. You go out just before the hour, drive around carefully, and hopefully you would arrive at. The start line, just as the clock ticked over the hour, and you were you were then um, you then started your laps. Well, I was I started. I was a bit nervous, and I went a bit quickly. So I don't know if you're familiar with Nurburgring, but uh, when you come to the end of the straight, it goes under a Dunlop bridge over a crest into a little gully. Well, I arrived there, and I was early, so I thought I'd just pull over on the side and wait. And when I pulled up on the side, there were about six or eight other cars there. Um, and you could see the clock on the tower as it was going up to four o'clock or whatever the hour was. The French were, of course, were out having a pee on the side of the road, as they, as they tend to do. And just as it, as it came up to one minute to four, everyone was in their cars. And magically, it clicked to, uh, to four o'clock and we all drove through the final chicane and down uh, and down across the line.
1: I mean, amazing race. You know, it's one of those ones I just, um, it would have been quite incredible to watch. Um, the, at, at that time, you were, do, you were doing sort of F2 as well, but it was then you got your Grand Prix debut uh, with Williams. Um, we've got a question here uh, from, from Gary, who's saying that obviously you raced for Williams right at the start. Were there any signs then that they would go on and achieve so much? Because I think it, in the 70s, it was just Frank, wasn't it? <clears throat>
2: it? It was just Frank and a couple of mechanics. Um, and I got that drive when Piers Courage was uh, killed. I uh, I just took a deep breath and went to see Frank, I knew Frank um, to see uh, if if uh, if there was an opportunity for me and which which there was. Um, and but Frank, you could see in Frank a bit like Ron Dennis, you know he was absolutely determined he was going to be successful and I think, Frank went through iterations of Frank Williams 1968 Limited and went broke in 1960, Frank Williams 1969 Limited. And in fact, in the end, or uh, well in, in those early years, the sponsorship money he was getting for the following year, he had to spend in paying people for the previous year. So he was always right on the, absolutely right on the limit. In fact, some of the suppliers, um, wouldn't take a cheque from him; they'd only take cash. That was uh, that was the way they dealt with him. But as I say, he was he was um, he was absolutely single-minded about uh, about uh, about getting to the top, which of course he did.
1: Yeah, was it was a big turning point? Patrick Head coming on board.
2: Patrick, yes, uh, but that was after my time with Frank. Patrick Head, I met when I was driving for Trojan. In fact, he might have had a short period with Brabham's, I'm not sure, but he was a draftsman really, uh, helping Ron act with that Trojan in 1974. Um, and uh, obviously a bright guy, and uh, he went on, and uh, he's, um, he, the, the record shows.
1: Yeah, and in 70, you were, you were driving the year old Brabham, the BT33, um, I think, did you not get a mention by Jenks but, you know for because you you you've obviously got some good results in that year um, and I think Jenks did then s- specifically mention you t- as d- having a, driven a very good race in a year-old Brabham that must have been for someone who grew up on motorsport and reading Jenks's continental notes and his Grand Prix reports that must have been a uh, quite a nice moment it
2: was a very nice moment and of course uh, uh, Jenks was uh, was a hero Um and um, in my bookcase behind there, I still have his uh, wonderful story of uh, winning the Milan Miglia alongside uh, Sterling Moss, or Sterling won it, and uh, games yeah. inside him.
1: Well, uh, you, you think you think you've got diet problems. I, if you, I move my screen up, those are all my motorsports. <laughs> it's, <laughs> like, it's, it's like it's like a disease. It's a problem.
2: <laughs> well, well, mine are on the other side there. You can't see them. Most of mine are free. I wouldn't pay. I wouldn't. I wouldn't pay for a book. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, it was interesting because um, being an Australian, you'd think naturally um, my hero would have been Jack Brabham, but strangely enough, it was Sterling Moss, and that was a, that came about because I was reading all the English magazines in the '60s, early '60s, before I went to Europe. So Sterling Moss, of course, was the man. Um, so uh, I always thought he he was he was something special, and I was really lucky. I went uh, some years ago. My wife Brigida and I went and stayed had a couple of nights with Sterling and Susie in um, in London and at his house in London, and that, that that was just so special. He is an incredible man, incredible. Now, you know what was yeah. lovely about him, he could easily have been saying, "Oh, it wasn't the same in my day." There might have been a little bit of that, but he always respected what the current uh, rules were, the current cars were, and the current drivers were.
1: Yeah. Well, I, what I found amazing about Sterling was how, even up to, right to the end, he was still flying all over the world, going yeah. to you know, watch motor racing. And, and he, he was genuinely interested in, in the, you know, the cars. And he, he did those pieces with Lewis Hamilton, with the Mercedes cars and sort of swapping yeah. cars. And yes. I think he was genuinely interested in how the modern Formula One car worked, um, and it just it was, he used to say, "Movement is tranquility," um, yeah. but he just he never stopped, never stop. Incredible.
2: Yeah, he's he yeah.
1: Was one of a kind. Yeah, it was. It, after it was, am I right in thinking that your move to 30s, I, you've always sort of said was was the beginning of the end for you in Formula One, because it was it was a very difficult team to work for with John because I think he was he was still he was obviously in charge of the team but he was very involved and quite imposing on the drivers wasn't he
2: he was he was a t- very difficult uh chapter drive for and I think if you talk to any of the those who uh, raced for him um they all had their own they've all got their own stories and, and difficulties um the driver who was absolutely suited uh for uh, team 30s was um mike Hailwood, because mike just turned up raced and went off um so he never really got involved in the setup of the car or anything about the cars at all and that was john's sort of driver and uh i mean i i had some i had some very strange experiences uh during the year situation during the year one of them was at the um British Grand Prix of Brands Hatch, where I had outqualified, um, I had outqualified Mike, and I was pr- proud as punch. I think I was fifth quickest, and um, uh, and Mike was no slouch. I tell you, when it came to uh, to came to cars, um, came to racing, and uh, John uh, said, "Oh no, that time's wrong," and I said, "Well, what do you mean it's wrong?" He said, yes, wrong, it's wrong. He said, uh, uh, Pat, it was his wife's name, Pat, Pat Surtees, Pat. He said, uh, she's the official timekeeper. She's got the correct times and you weren't as fast as Mike. Uh, I'm, I'm going off to protest your time. Hey, what are you talking about? Yes, I'm, yeah, that's, I'm going to protest your time. In the end, he didn't, but, um, that was just an example. And, uh, I have to say, I've, I've, I've met Don in recent years, just before we lost him, um, he is a, a great bloke, a really great bloke. Now, for some reason, just paranoid running his race team. He thought everyone was out to get him.
1: Yeah. Do you think he had a, an easy relationship with Mike because they were both bikers? Do you think yeah. there was anything there?
2: I'm sure that helped. But the big thing with Mike, as I say, he just turned up, drove, and left. Um, and that suited uh, John. He didn't want people fiddling with the car and asking question, asking difficult questions.
1: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> fast forward a little bit, and around this time, you're driving the the three one two, the Ferrari sports car, um, and doing the Daytona 24 Hours. You had quite an interesting night the mm-hmm. night before the 24 hour race with Ronnie, did you not?
2: You're
1: you're you, you're ruining all my good stories. These are. Well, I, I haven't said what happened yet.
2: <laughs> um, yes, no, what happened there is uh, Ronnie and I were there uh, at Daytona for, this was 72 for the 1,000 kilometre or six-hour six race, and we were staying, uh, I was at the um, the Speedway at the Holiday Inn, and we got a bit sick of the of the uh, meals there, and uh, I said to ask Mario Andretti, have you got any, you know, it's awfully boring eating there, is there somewhere decent to eat in town? He said, yes, uh, whatever the hotel was, go down there. Um, it's right on the beach. It's lovely and you can look out across the beach and across uh, across the sea, the ocean. Um, and so Ronnie and I went down there and we were sitting there eating and we noticed a odd car driving up and down the beach. And uh, uh, Ronnie said, oh, well, we should, we should have a drive on the beach, uh, along the beach, just for a bit of fun. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, it was always me, Muggins. I was always the driver. So we... We zoomed, we after, after uh, dinner, we zoomed down the highway and turned onto the beach on one of these on-ramps. It was something like out of a James Bond movie, and we took off, this thing took off, landed on the, landed on the beach, huge slide, right in front of a police car. Um, well, the speed limit was 25. We probably arrived about 70, and, of course, the lights went on and we were stopped immediately. We had, the, the, we had no ID on us. No ID whatsoever. And of course, that's a big issue in the States. If you get stopped, the first thing got to show is your ID. We had no ID. So they took us back to the police station. They took us downstairs to where the cells were. We didn't, we weren't put in a cell. And uh, we sort of argued there for a while. Eventually I realized, well, Ronnie was only the passenger. Maybe he could go back to the hotel and get our passports. Yeah, there's a good idea. So uh, Ronnie, by this time was well and truly pissed off it was late and we had the race the following day. and so he went out, got into the car in the car park and lit the tires up and went off down down the, the road back to the hotel. Well of course they were immediately the police were immediately onto the radio, all points bulletin, roadblocks everywhere and uh, 20 minutes later a very sheepish uh, Ronnie uh, came back um, and uh, they brought him back. and then I remembered, in watching American movies, you're always allowed one phone call. So I rang Peter Shetty, woke him up, and that was, I was already in the bad books for waking him up, telling him what had happened. or well, was even in more serious trouble. And he said, oh, okay, I'll see what I can do. Well, I think he must have rung one of the France family because maybe 45 minutes later, the phone rang um, in the police station. They answered, oh, yes, yes, sir, yes, yes. All right, yes, yes, yes. I'll just give them a caution this time and hung up, and we were allowed to leave. So, um, yeah. Anyhow, yes, we were, did- we were a bit embarrassed the following morning when we arrived at the <laughs> uh,
1: uh, at a, bit, a, a bit sheepish. How, how did the race go?
2: I think we were doing quite well. Um, and then we had a gearbox issue at the end. So, I'm sure you got all the results there. I, I don't remember. I remember the races then- that we won and we, we, yeah. uh, those that we finished were usually second or third.
1: Yeah. That's, what was that 312 like to drive? Because, you know, <clears throat> looking at the results in terms of the 917 versus the, the 312, the 917 really, it kind of always had that edge. Um, but from what I hear, the 312 was not, it wasn't a horrible car to drive at all.
2: No, well, the, the formula changed from five litre engine capacity in um, the previous year to, th- to three litre. And so that's where Ferrari were using their detuned, slightly detuned Formula One engine that threw it a flat 12. Um, uh, uh, Peter Shetty was the team manager. They had um, poached um, uh, um, Emano Quargi, I think his name was. He was a a Gung uh, uh, team mechanic, chief mechanic uh, from Wire. Um, And uh, I don't know if many... Uh, if this is sort of recorded anywhere, but each driver had two cars. So while you were racing one car, the other car was back at the factory being prepared for the following race. So you were, you were changing, you had a, you, you drove the same car every second race. So it was incredibly professional. They had the best cars. They had the best drivers. Me, of course, I've got to say that. But uh, <laughs> no, Hicks and Andretti and Redmond and Ronnie Regazzoni. Um, and the opposition was, uh, I think, the Golf Mirage um, and um, and what else it would have been, Alfa Romeo as well. So we had the best cars. They were, Ferrari hadn't mastered building a monocoque, so there were tube frames. Uh, the 70, 1972 car was short wheelbase, so they were a bit difficult to to handle on uh Fast corners, but on, on uh, shorter circuits, uh, tight corners, they were very good, it was great. And a lovely, lovely car to drive, lovely car to drive. Beautiful gearbox. We used to think the Hewland gearbox was a nice gearbox, but the Ferrari gearbox was so light and easy. It was, a, it was a great, fantastic time, actually. When you're with Ferrari or an Italian team and you're winning, it's the best ever. The following year, wasn't so hot because Matra came along, they understood aerodynamics, they had a
1: monocoque chassis, um, and they just had a better car. So we, we struggled in '73. Yeah, yeah. Just to sort of, I can't believe we've 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 nearly come to an end already. But I wanted to talk, just finish on on Porsches. You know, you drove so many, whether those were the the GT cars, you know, the 934, and then onto the 935, and also the 91710. Do you have a particular favourite out of those when you look back at it? Well, I always say
2: the favourite, my favourite cars are the cars I won in or did very well in. Um, I mean, that, that nine, that nine three five was, that was a difficult car to drive because it had, probably had 700, 750 brake horsepower. You know, it was three, 3.5 litre, I think, twin turbo, very powerful, engine out the back, great big wide rear tyres to, to, um, uh to handle the power and skinny little front tires and a lock diff so they were very very difficult to drive especially in the wet because when you arrived at a corner in the wet they'd always wanted to go straight and it took a bit to get it to to turn and then of course once then when you got the power on it was then all oversteer um but i won the nurburgring thousand kilometer race in it with john fitzpatrick and trine hazelman so i was happy i was happy
1: yeah <clears throat> and you, you know you 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 had wins really sort of all over the world, but was, were there any circuits? Because I keep bringing up Brian, but obviously we've talked to him, you know, about this, you know, with the, in this series. He hated but loved Spa. You know, he didn't like racing at Spa, but he won the thousand kilometers four times. Um, did you have a circuit that you had particular sort of affinity with that you just naturally went quicker at?
2: Uh no, once again, the circuits I did well on are the circuits I loved. I, I did actually enjoy uh, Nürburgring, I must say. For some reason, Nürburgring just seems to suit me. Um, and I know they call it the green hell, but it wasn't the green hell as far as I was uh, concerned. Uh, and other great circuits, and we've lost many of them now, was uh, Brands Hatch Grand Prix circuit, the original layout. Uh, Alton Park uh, was also... Um, Original layout there, they were fantastic circuits. Rouen in France, um, Albi, um, uh, you know, the circuits that I, I doubt would survive today, but uh, uh, they're all wonderful circuits to drive on. Fast, demanding, hard, tough.
1: Yeah. Well, Tim, we, I can't believe we're sort of out of time already. and we, You know, there's so much we haven't talked about, um, but really that's just a good excuse to maybe do another podcast soon. Um, it's been an absolutely wonderful hour of chatting all things, uh, whether it's Formula One or Porsche or Ferrari at Daytona or being arrested um, almost twice. Um, it really has been great, and thank you so much for spending so much time um, all the way from Australia.
2: Well, Dad, that's my pleasure, and I love talking about myself. So, if you want to do <laughs> this again, if you want to do this again in another fifty years' time, I'd be happy to uh, oblige. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well there's a there's a glowing report for the for the motorsport podcast i must say thank you to all of you as well for listening and for watching do check out all the other podcasts we have in this series of porsche's winning formula and we'll see you all again soon thank you so much bye